Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. If you listen closely, right there, you can hear it. There are parts of New York City where we're starting to see new life. Yes, the lockdown continues, but there are parts of the city where construction crews, road crews, are beginning to get back to work. In this edition of 880 In-Depth, we want to dream. We want to dream about our transportation system, how the city will get back up and running. Talking about the suburban rails, subways, automobiles, bikes, even walking. Now is the time to start planning for a different future, for a different normal that we will see. How will this city get back up and running? Not when, but how. I'm Tim Sheld from WCBS News Radio 880, and this has been an internal discussion we've been having for weeks now. Will people ride the subways again in big numbers, or will they pile back into their cars and crowd city streets? Will anyone want to gather in Penn Station waiting rooms? We turn to someone who knows a thing about this city's transportation system. He's known as Gridlock Sam, former New York City Traffic Commissioner Sam Schwartz who spoke to our Peter Haskell about what the commute will likely look like. I think we're facing a period of time post-virus in which people are still somewhat afraid to be uh, jammed into subways. Not that they ever liked it, but there's going to be reluctance. And we saw this uh, post-9-11 where we had people afraid to ride the subways. There were bomb threats, there were anthrax scares and people started to switch to motor vehicles. And that's it's a real problem. The city cannot function, especially the city's central business district, which is Manhattan South of 60th Street, with most of the 4 million people trying to come in by car. Just doesn't work. So we need some solutions, and we have to start preparing right now for if it's the fall or if it's early 2021, Um, We see a full return to work. Hopefully it's a lot sooner than that. Uh, But we may have to look at lessons learned in the past. Post 9-11, one of the things that was imposed is something that I first did with the New York City transit strike in 1980, uh, uh, imposed occupancy restrictions on people coming into Manhattan. Now, that may be tougher now because people don't want to double up in their cars, but maybe use a form of congestion pricing to do that. So if you're coming in to Manhattan, you'll have to pay more if you're driver only, pay less if you have other occupants in your cars. We have to have a full 
operating subway system. And people may say, why full if it's 60% of the people are probably going to return at first? Uh, well, the reason is if 60% return at first, we want to have good spacing, spacing in the, within the subway cars, spacing at the stations. And we're going to have to be creative about other things, and we have to also look long-term and start planning. If it's a virus, if it's uh, hopefully not another terrorist attack, uh, but we should have been preparing for this virus a long time ago and how to move people. And one of the things that I've called for a number of years now is people want to walk more, they want to bicycle more, but they can't even get in from New Jersey by bicycle. You have to go way up to the George Washington Bridge, which has a pretty lousy bike path going across it, uh, to come in. Yet you have all these young, energetic people that want to walk, bike, and even some older ones like me, uh, that want to come in and walk and bike uh, in Jersey City and in Hoboken. And let's build a bike pedestrian bridge. Let's do one from Brooklyn to Governor's Island to Lower Manhattan. Let's build one to the Cornell Technion campus on Roosevelt Island from Long Island City and right into uh, Midtown Manhattan. Now is the time to start planning for a different future, for a different normal that we will see. The first thing that comes to mind when you talk about these new bridges is money. There's not enough money for the subways to the commuter rails. How is that going to happen? Yeah, so if we're looking at uh, one-year horizons, we'll never come up with anything that's imaginative. We have to imagine that the people of 2030, the people of 2040, will also have problems. And how do we solve those problems? Do we just repeat mistakes of the past? Well, we haven't built a bridge to Manhattan Central Business District since 1909. We are spending an enormous amount of money subsidizing drivers coming into Manhattan. We are subsidizing ferry riders. Uh, we build for a couple hundred million something called the High Line, and we love it and we bask in it, but it doesn't provide transportation. When you look at it on a per-passenger basis, pedestrian bike bridges are incredibly efficient. They uh, provide uh, no pollution, small carbon footprint, and people are doing it around the world. Paris is doing it. London's doing it. Portland, Oregon is doing it. They just did it in in Ohio. Uh, they're building pedestrian bridges so many different places because they know that that's one of the best forms of transportation for the future. So. One of the things that we do, and psychologists call it, we have short-term memories but long-term lives, is we can only think, gee, look at where we are today. How can we even think big? Well, New York's been through so many crises. If you go from our inception to Civil War riots to the Spanish flu to World War One, World War II, Great Depressions, 9-11, uh, the riots of the 60s, somehow we've come out ahead when we started to think long-term and say, we can do it. Congestion pricing seems like a great way to raise money, but it seems like it's not going to happen on schedule. So how big a problem is that, and is there a way to get it up and running sooner? Uh, congestion pricing is more essential than ever, and I could hear the screams, and believe me, after my op-ed, I'm already getting some of them. Uh, how can you do it now? Just when, you know, how can you hit people now? Well, it turns out, everybody listening right now, there's going to be a price to pay. We all have to chip in. 
people are all, all going to have to participate. We are going to need more revenue to have an, a good up and running transit system benefits the driver. So yes, you who have been subsidized coming across the Manhattan Bridge since 1911 when tolls were removed from the Manhattan Bridge and you've got seven lanes across it, you don't pay to come in yet. All those people on those four tracks, more people than come in by car, have been paying 275. So we're going to have to have congestion pricing as soon as possible. And I would hope that the state could get it in, in place in 2021. I heard the MTA chief say maybe not, maybe not January 2021, but sometime in 2021. And I know they're working on plans for how to implement it. And if they can't implement it right away, in 1980, the city developed a form of congestion pricing plan. And that was, if you're coming across the East River Bridges and you're in a driver-only car, the least efficient mode of transportation, take the toll facilities, the two tunnels and the Tribar Bridge. If you are a multi-occupant vehicle, take the East River Bridges. Just do that during the peak period, say 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. And you'll see what a dramatic difference we can make. We'll raise some revenue, and we'll also reduce congestion at the same time. And I think we're going to have to expect Uber, Lyft, and other rideshare services to also contribute, based not so much on just the drop that they pay now, but on the amount of time they pay in the central business district. And yes, I think we're going to have to pay more at the turnstile. Uh, you know, this is a city with a heart. It does offer... Uh, now what's called fair fares for low-income people. It should continue that, but the rest of us should be paying more to ride the subway. Everybody should pay. City bike fees should go up too. I'm sorry, people, but there's no magic bullet. And if you think the federal government's going to totally bail us out, I've got four bridges across the East River to sell to you. Funding the MTA, if the feds don't do that, if congestion pricing is on hold, how does this system stay afloat? Uh, we're we're, we're going to need money for the subway system. It is our lifeboat. It it's what's keeping our essential workers, our health workers, getting to hospitals. Uh, taking, you know, the buses are, are taking people to so many medical facilities. Once we return, we're going to need it uh, more than ever before. We have to come up with a funding plan. Congestion pricing has to be right up there. Fare increases will have to be up there. And toll increases around the city. We have 15 toll facilities. We're going to have to raise the tolls. They're scheduled to go up in March. They may have to go up more than before. I'm calling on the tolls coming into the central, into Manhattan, going up by 20%. We'll have to look at uh, going up across the Hudson River. We may even have to extend this. We're a region to the Marietta Cuomo Bridge and add some uh, funding at the throughway that goes towards uh, transit. Everybody's going to be in this together, and the transit system benefits the pe benefits uh, the people that are driving in from Westchester, from Long Island, from other places, because we need a strong Long Island Railroad, Metro North Railroad, path system, New Jersey Transit. You know, we're an economic center of the country around the world. We cannot function without people getting to their jobs, without the people there that will feed the people that get to their jobs, without the people driving the trains getting to their jobs. We're all in this together. It will be painful. It was painful 
we not only came back 9-11, within, within a year, transit ridership was up to 90% coming into the central business district, but we came back stronger than ever. We have more people coming into uh, Manhattan's business district than ever before. We have a bigger population than we have had historically. We can do it, but don't expect mana from heaven or money from the federal government. We also reached out to another smart voice on transportation in New York. Mitchell Moss is the director of NYU's Rudin Center for Transportation. Now, he agrees with Sam Schwartz that there will be changes to the normal. But you will find him in the polar opposite position of gridlock, Sam's, in the idea of raising subway fares and making drivers pay more right away. We do know that the MTA has different systems. The commuter railroads, the Long Island Railroad and Metro North, serve a population which has the capacity to work at home, or many of the people who are employed in Manhattan and in office uh, jobs can work remotely, and they are doing it remotely, and I think that that's going to have a permanent and enduring effect on the suburban commuter rail system, where they might work in their office two or three days a week. But once they've gotten used to working remotely, they're, you know, and organizations have been quite flexible, uh, they've had no choice, and technology has become much more accessible to people, so we're seeing much more activity in the home than we've ever imagined. So the suburban commuter railroads are going to have a real challenge rebuilding that ridership. Now, on the other score, I think which is important, the subways are essential for many people to get to work because uh, car ownership in New York is actually much lower than other cities. It's very high in Staten Island, of course, a little higher in Brooklyn and Queens, but this is a city which depends on underground transportation. We're a subway city. So the MTA has a big challenge. They have to make people feel that riding the subway is going to be um, something which they're not going to be risking their health. That means an aggressive effort to sanitize the stations, maintain very high levels of enforcement of masks while you ride the subway. Uh, No one who gets near a subway station should be allowed to enter without a mask. And I think we have to have a high level of uh, enforcement here. And the MTA, which I know the governor and the MTA were hiring 500 new law enforcement people, but if you walk into a subway station without a mask, you should be removed immediately. And there should be any negotiation. You don't even have to give them a summons, toss them out. So that'd be the first part. Uh, and I think that uh, the second part is that, you know, we're going to have to find a way, I think, and this is important, to make sure that um, people know that they were on the train. Um, they should be limiting the crowding. Now, that's going to be very hard because the platforms tend to be jammed, and that means firms should probably stagger hours. There should be much more flexibility. And uh, we did this actually in the Spanish flu of 1918. Uh, employers were asked to stagger the hours, and that was an industrial economy. But we're going to have to do a lot more to kind of move the peak hour sometimes a little later or sometimes a little earlier just to change the shift. A little bit of reduction of traveling at peak hours can do a great deal to reduce the kind of crowding. How difficult do you think it's going to be to convince riders that, yes, the system is safe? I think it's going to be a huge burden on the MTA uh, to find a way to convince riders because they have been 
you know, correctly self-enforcing. You know, each person is regulating their behavior and not putting themselves in the line of fire. And it's really a very important kind of lesson that, you know, New Yorkers have on their own determined that it's far more important to maintain their health um, than to do anything else. And I think the subway is going to have a big challenge. Obviously, there are many people who have no choice. They have to get to work. They're paid hourly. They have to be there. And a vast part of the city will go back to the subway and take as much precaution as they can. But I think the MTA has to show that they're as equally committed to doing this. And they're, gonna, they're spending, they seem, about you know half a billion dollars a year on cleaning this. They're going to have to double that. And I would hope that um, that part of the you know efforts to improve uh, the city's uh, economy was recognizing that improving mass transit is vital to the economy. If we don't have the subways working, people aren't going to work. If they can't get to work, there's no you know, opportunity for the economy to recover. So the subway has to be a very high priority. That means you know we have to really devote resources to get the trains, the stations, and those uh, turnstiles all much more kind of clean, not once every three days, but every day. And I think riders have to be uh, confident that the person sitting next to them is not going to be breathing directly on them. I guess the $64 million question or the $4 billion question is, where does the money come from, especially if commuter rail lines lose riders? Well, I think there are three sources of money that we know of. One is the fare box, and we're not going to raise the fare at this time. People can't afford to, and they won't pay it because they'll say, how do I know it's going to This is no time to raise the fare. We have to get people back on paying the regular fare. The second part is we have several different revenue streams would go to the MTA, and I'm very worried about them. They haven't been discussed. The MTA gets a certain percentage of the mobility tax based on income. It gets a huge piece of the mansion tax, and, you know, there is no market for the $10 million condo anymore. You know, we have a glut of people who have built buildings for 10 or $20 million. Hopefully, they will have to be, uh, they're going to have a lot of refinancing there and something will happen. But, you know, New Yorkers want to live in New York, but we built a housing supply for people who are from China and Russia and they're not coming to New York. It's the most ridiculous situation. We have, you know, 57th Street filled with glass towers and other parts of the city where we, you know, have Hudson Yards. These are priced for people who are not earning wages. They're basically living on wages that are from the gained elsewhere. So uh, the challenge is, can we make the subways work for the fare boxes are going to grow? The tax system is the mortgage and the income aren't going to grow, and they require. So then we get and they get funds from other streams of revenue, and then we have the bond market. And the new kind of bond market has been very inventive, and the MTA has had great success in issuing bonds basically that are hinged to the revenues of the MTA. And so we have to find ways to kind of take some of the short-term monies that have been designated for capital and put them into operating. The key part is we have to maintain the system to make it work on the short-term or else the entire city suffers. And that means some of the kind of proposed capital projects have going to have to be funding some of the operating, at least for the short-term. So, two-part question, if more people from the suburbs drive, how significant is it to get congestion pricing up and running? And if oh, ta- I think this is if, a great, yes. And if it takes time, which it seems like it's going to take more time than planned, 
what is the, it seems like that's almost a double impact on the MTA. This is this is a, we are seeing two problems. I should have mentioned the bridge and tunnel traffic is way down uh, because uh, people aren't driving in because the offices are closed, the theaters are closed, the restaurants are closed. So we don't have the revenues coming in from the Triborough Bridge. You certainly don't want to call it the Kennedy Robert F. Kennedy Bridge. No one does. We don't have the Triborough Bridge, which is a great revenue stream. We don't have the Henry Hudson Bridge. We certainly don't have, you know, the Queens Midtown Tunnel generating the kinds of money, you know, the carry Tunnel that they used to. Now, congestion pricing, if it were imposed now, would be another detriment to coming into New York City, and it would turn out that it would not help at all. Uh, congestion pricing uh, represents a tax on people driving to New York City, and you know, I think that the you know, that you can do that in good times, but we're living in very tough times. So that is going to be delayed, and I think it makes sense to understand that on the long term, it's a very, very good revenue stream. On the short term, uh, we have to get people coming back to work and coming back. We have to get a lot of the city functioning before we can bring that you know, tax into play. Um, uh, we, 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 we now have the worst of worlds. We have no congestion and no congestion charge. So, you know, so the people who don't want congestion are very happy, uh, but, the, but if you really believe in mass transit, you need to have some use of the bridges and tunnels to generate those fees. But let me, let me see if I get this right. I mean, it would seem to me, if I live on Long Island in Westchester in New Jersey, I don't want to take the train. I'm going to drive. I'm, I need to get to work. I'm going to drive. Is that not the case? Well, I think that so much has to do with the cost in terms of time. And one of the great advantages of the New Jersey transit system is that you can get on a train or a bus, you come into New York, you don't have the uh, amount of cost of parking and tunnels and fees and this sort, okay? And so, you know, parking a vehicle in New York for a day is very expensive, and certainly dry, taking a lot of time, Some, in many cases driving is not faster than taking, you know, New Jersey Transit on Long Island Railroad. Metro North has demonstrated that it's much more efficient to take the Metro North train, come into New York City, and then you go back and forth and you drive to your home. So those systems have some real advantages in time and money. Uh, but I think your point is very important. People are going to be putting a primary emphasis on their health, and if they feel they're putting themselves at risk of being on a commuter rail, or they're going to work at home more. And when they come into work, you may be correct. They may be taking a car in and maybe driving at different hours to avoid some of the congestion. But, you know, our roads can't handle having everyone who took the commuter rail getting into their car. This, the capacity isn't there. So one of the reasons people take the train is because it's faster than driving and, of course, it's much cheaper. So I don't know that we are going to see people suddenly get in their cars. I think they're just going to stay at home remotely. I think that's going to turn out to be far. The real risk is that we'll have people working remotely three days a week and you know they want to come in and see people in the office and have meetings they'll do that for two days a week that would be a more likely scenario two other things one is 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 it worth trying to impose some kind of carpooling and the second thing is what is the likelihood the federal government will provide the transit system the money it needs well the carpooling is a great concept in principle, but are you going to have a stranger sit next to you in your car here without having their blood test and everything else? I don't think so. I, 
the concept of carpooling assumes that the person next to you is not carrying a virus and is her, and or else he's going to be hermetically sealed part of the car. Neither of them are possible. So, yeah, you may share a car ride with someone who you know, and, but even then you're going to be a little bit more concerned about, you know, really how many people can carpool uh, because the amount of air in a car actually is pretty uh, limited, and so you're going to be sharing that space for an hour each way. The second part, will the federal government support mass transit? This is a really crucial part. The MTA is needy, but it hasn't been very good at making the case that it's deserving. We can't go to New York, to Washington, and say we're needy. First, we're the fourth biggest state. You might want to tell the U.S. senators, we're not California, we're not Texas, we're not Florida, we're fourth. And New York... The, the difference between 9-11 and coronavirus is that after 9-11, the nation wanted to help New York. But after the coronavirus, the nation blames New York. Just the opposite. So, you know, we're not a sympathetic, you know, state at this point. If you go look at the data, you'll find out that, you know, less than 20 counties in the country are counting for, you know, 40% of the uh, coronavirus. So we have to make a case that it's deserving. And there's one case that's deserving, and it's simple. The governor tried to make it to that uh, Kentucky senator. I forgot his name. Um, the one key thing is in New York City, in New York, but New York City generates a huge portion of the national G, gross national product. We are a very important source of productivity. You know, if people don't have, go to the restaurants in New York, the whole food chain of the nation doesn't really benefit because that who, who's bringing in the, the meat and all the other vegetables but the people bring it from the rest of the country so new york is actually a very big part of the national economy and we have to show that if we don't have the mta then none of the rest of the city's economy works if that doesn't work the nation's going to lose a lot of taxes so i have a lot of confidence that the mta has to make a stronger and more persuasive case and it hasn't to be framed on not need but being deserving and the reason we're deserving is because we pay a disproportionate share of the national taxes because we support jobs and businesses around the country and finally i think it's important to recognize that you know that if new york isn't functional uh, in a powerful way you know the nation is going to suffer at a much higher level because this is, uh, you know, our MTA is one of the top lenders of tax-free municipal bonds. We want to have a strong MTA because if the MTA's bond rating goes up, then every other county and state is going to suffer as well. So there's a synergy between New York and the nation, which we have to kind of strengthen. And uh, Senator Moynihan used to point out how much more we pay every year than we get back to the federal government. And we need to have our senators discover that. And we have to make the case that New York is not needy, it's deserving, and it's deserving because it benefits the country. One thing is clear. Governor Cuomo recognizes the need to give subway riders confidence that the system is clean. He just announced a plan that starts May 4th, next week, to shut the subways down every night from 1 to 5 in the morning for deep cleaning. Our Michael Wallace spoke to the governor this week and wanted to know... Do you have any idea on a timeline for all this? Is this to be determined how long this nightly cleaning will go on? It will go on as long as the global pandemic goes on. You tell me when the pandemic ends. I'll tell you when the train cleaning ends. Uh, 
I will also tell you when I will pop the largest bottle of champagne <laughs> ever seen in the state of New York. I think we all will. That's a wrap for this edition of 880 In-Depth. My thanks to Peter Haskell for the digging he did into this topic with our experts Mitchell Moss and Sam Schwartz. You can find 880 In-Depth wherever you get your podcasts. We encourage you to subscribe. And as I like to say, please tell a friend. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.